Empowering Independence podcast is a conversation about the RIA space, hosted by Austin Philbin, with friends and guests that include individuals spanning the entire spectrum of wealth management. A high-energy, insightful creation, this show aims to demystify many of the myths of financial services and provide insights, fresh ideas, and a true look into what it takes to be a successful wealth management entrepreneur. Austin will ask the questions that need to be answered by any firm looking to drive scale, efficiency, and enterprise value. Hello, and welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, and today I'll be joined by Ben Bynes, Senior Vice President, Network Development at Dynasty Financial Partners. We're going to be talking about how the math works. As we all know, compensation matters, full stop, period. Understanding the economics of running an independent registered investment advisor is incredibly important. The benefit in this transition from an employee to an owner is the control. As an owner, you now control the decisions, how much to spend on real estate, marketing, and employee salaries. We'll discuss these items and more on today's episode. Today, I am joined by a very special guest and friend, Ben Bynes, Senior Vice President, Network Development at Dynasty Financial Partners. So what I'd like to do today, uh, besides welcoming Ben to the podcast, welcome, Ben. Thank you, Austin. Happy to be here. Is I'd like to, to set a little bit of context for the listeners. Uh, one, just context about Ben, because I don't get to, to brag on him too much, and then second, uh, give you all some insight into what we're going to discuss today. Uh, so more than 20 years ago, if you can believe it, uh, a transfer from Bucknell University came to uh, Bates College, and we met at a batting cage, and uh, we practiced hitting, and that was my first interaction, first meeting with with Ben. We went on to play several years of, of baseball together, and also during that time, if you remember, Ben, we had a dinner meeting at The Den. So any of you Batesies out there that are listening to that, that is the, the after-hours place for food. And uh, Ben brought a bunch of us together to think about a startup company, an idea that he had uh, in the back of his mind. It was myself, Ben, and I think someone from Bowdoin, a female from Bowdoin. Annie Tsang. Yeah. All right. So we never got that off the ground. Graduated. Um both moved on to, to other things. Ben became, uh, during the service, became a, uh, a fighter pilot, became an instructor, and uh, also started uh, a couple companies as well. One was uh, Rumi Spice. Shout out to Rumi Spice. Is that still in existence? Yeah, it's doing well. They uh, got funding on Shark Tank. Uh, it's got to be over a year ago. Okay. But that was a great story. It's Rumi Spice and also a flavorless caffeine addition for beverages that also was uh, started and still, I think, a great idea. A really, really good idea. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I when I, <laughs> uh, when I started to create this, I was like, wow, this is pretty incredible. And I'll tell you, the, the uh, motivation behind it was from my days flying. Uh, I was doing 8- to 12-hour missions, and uh, I was drinking a lot of coffee. Right. And, uh, you know, it dawned on me that wouldn't it be great if I could just put a little caffeine, something natural, in some water and some Gatorade, whatever. Um, and so that idea started to take off. It was funny. I, I would actually be driving. I would be taking off, rolling down the runway, you know, emailing the bottling company as I'm trying to <laughs> develop this product. It became too much. Yeah. Uh, but I do still think it's a great idea. I think it's totally. I'm glad that the U.S. government trusted you to multitask they did. while they did. you were <laughs> trying. It's amazing to... what you can do with your knees. <laughs> <laughs> so then you, you you leave the service and uh, you decide, you know, pretty easy challenge. I'll just go to Harvard Business School and, and uh, get my MBA, which you did. And then uh, we, we get back together, uh, you and I, and you uh, start your, your career at Dynasty within the financial services. And we live together in my apartment in Edgewater, New Jersey, and uh, you slept on the couch. We also uh, borrowed, would be the polite term, or stole the luggage carrier from the lobby in which you could <laughs> hang your clothes. <laughs> 
And coming back to uh, Rumi Spice, I can remember you, because of all the G-forces on your neck, having to use a, a compression tool and, and being on the, the floor talking to some of your uh, co-founders at Rumi Spice while using the compression tool and watching television. And I walked in and saw you, and I was like, I'm just walking right back out. I don't want any part <laughs> of this discussion. And so... Uh, you know, the moral to that story is that uh, we've known each other a long time. You've had a very impressive um, career, isn't the right word, very impressive life up until this point. I am Thank very you. glad that uh, that we get to work together and that you're a friend. And, um, you know, w- the transition into uh, this actual podcast is pretty simple. Y- you, in in terms of the individuals that I've met within the financial service space around understanding the economics of the business. There, there's there's very few people that have your level of acumen, and, and that's what you do, uh, and that's what you've done for Dynasty for a long period of time. And so <clears throat> my first question to you uh, from, a, from a business perspective and, and for our listeners to understand a little bit around the economics behind independence, because that's a critical question, is when you look at the employee model for an individual that's at a traditional financial institution and then you compare that to the model of being an entrepreneur as a, as a registered investment advisor, what is that biggest difference between the two in your mind? Well, I, uh, I think that it speaks to different individuals. So um, I think that the entrepreneur is uh, somebody who's going to have a real vision that they're driving towards and they're probably going to feel constrained inside of an employee model Uh, and they're going to constantly butt up against walls that are going to stop them from expanding into areas that they know are going to be in the best interest of their client or exciting to them and their team are going to unlock additional economic opportunity for that group their families uh, potentially better performance for their clients but overall a much better experience and they uh, they have that vision and they really want to drive towards it and they're sort of trying to work towards a way to get there. And they realize at some point that the only true way to get there is to be able to uh, break away from uh, what I sort of like to call an umbrella offering, uh, where you're trading um, control and freedom and the ability to be very creative uh, for some level of perceived comfort, uh, some level of, you know, platform service, uh, potentially as you're getting started, you know, a brand that might help you uh, unlock some doors. But as you get into a stage of your career where you don't need uh, that kind of um, oversight anymore, it stops being any kind of a benefit and it starts to become a burden, um, those folks who are true entrepreneurs are going to start to have that burning feeling inside of them that I need to escape these walls and I need to go find a way to bring all of the right partners together to support my vision and I need some help to figure out who those right partners are and tie them all together for me and with me and my team so that I can continue to focus right on the things that are really going to drive that value which is going to be Uh, And people say this a lot, but it is true. Spending time with the folks that are your clients and continuing to go out and grow that base. And if you're doing anything other than that, um, you're sort of taking away uh, the value that you can create. The the other uh, thing that uh, I think an entrepreneur is going to get frustrated with in an employee model is there's a cap. Right. So a lot of the value proposition or the value that you're creating from your life's work and your effort, um, what you can uh, enjoy from that is capped in many ways. Right. Yeah. And so that's going to be incredibly frustrating for uh, a true entrepreneur. And so as you think about if I were to separate myself from that sort of umbrella offering, create my own vision here and I'm able to grow that vision well, I'm also going to grow the profitability, and as the owner, I'm going to enjoy that additional benefit. Yeah, um, Let, and so that's pretty great. Yeah, I mean, I think that second point is one that I definitely want to come back to. Uh, however, what you just laid out, I, I think is it, it's it's really excellent. And one of the points that that you made, I think, is 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 critically important for people to to think about, which is how do you get that information right? Because you're you're running your practice. 
You're, you're doing the things that you need to do to service your clients. You feel this burning ambition. You, you understand there's likely a better way to serve my clients. There's likely a better way <clears throat> to affect what I need to do as an entrepreneur. I can't do it here. But then how do you because there's a lot of information, there's a lot of misinformation out there. How do you get to the truth of what it means to be a registered investment advisor? And if someone came to you and said, hey, Ben, I really want to learn more about the independent space, what are some of the ways you would suggest for them to do that? Yeah, I think that's that's a, a real challenge that people face because um, as you start to reach out to resources, uh, one thing that you have to keep in mind is that everybody that you're reaching out to who sort of puts themselves out as an industry consultant in some way, shape, or form uh, likely has an interest in uh, you going in a particular direction. Sure. Um, and mm-hmm. so that uh, – I think there are great folks in the space that can uh, that can rise above that influence. Um, many do. Uh, but I do think that that um, is a little bit of a misaligned – uh, incentive structure to get truly unbiased advice. I think that uh, when you're thinking about going to a fully independent model, right, you are going to build your RIA or hybrid structure, um, and you want to sit down with somebody who is going to be also on the same side of the table as you, talking about what are the resources that need to get pulled together, how much do those things cost, what's the additional help that you're probably going to uh, require to be able to keep your head out of the business and growing it as opposed to just running the day-to-day the entire time, uh, which is going to sacrifice growth and value. Um, I think, honestly, that you should be reaching out to, and this is a little self-serving, but directly to uh, you know, folks like us at Dynasty right. who are going to be able to say, look, um, we're not selling you on going independent. We're not selling anybody on building their own firm. That would be crazy, right? What we're doing is uh, working with folks who are uh, interested in taking that step. Um, and they're not looking to have uh, a plug-and-play kind of model, right? Right. They want to craft their own unique value proposition. We're saying, okay, here are all the pieces that come together. And then within that is here's how we provide that support, and here's how everything comes together from an economic standpoint, including our fees. And that learning process uh, really gets them a long way towards the understanding of being able to say, okay, and so what should I evaluate against that? Well, the real direct competition and truly, in my opinion, the only competition is somebody who's going to then say, well, maybe I'll just try to build it on my own. Right. And I think we'll discuss a little bit of the pros and cons of that later. Uh, but just for a quick highlight, the uh, the major decision is where's my best use of time? Yeah, I think the the one thing that I learned very early on in this, this journey was it, it's extremely helpful to be as close to an operator as possible because you can give a lot of really good advice, but oftentimes that advice is seen or given just through one lens, meaning that the second, the secondary or tertiary consequences of a decision, as an example, to use a specific financial planning tool or reporting tool is given by the person that's representing that tool and they, they're not in the day-to-day business. They don't understand how things interact to a high degree. So I totally am in agreement with what you stated, which is it's hard to find really good, solid information from the level of operational excellence, like how things work, how you implement things, and then how do you also be able to give tactical advice and finding some someone or something that can do that for you, whether it's with Dynasty or anyone else, is incredibly important because there are lots of people that can guide you in the best interest of maximizing your economic value, right? They can tell you, here's how you get the best deal for your business. But if you're after something else, if you're after being an entrepreneur and you're after building something that is going to have its own unique enterprise value, you really want to find individuals that understand how things work at a very myopic level, not just at a superficial, oh, this is cool technology, you'll love it, because that only goes so far. You get into the weeds and you start to think about, well, 
how come I didn't know that this doesn't this system does not talk to this other system in the way that I need it to happen? Yeah, you know, that's a fantastic point because uh, one of the things that I've learned uh, from uh, developing lots of relationships, some folks, you know, that were supporting, some folks that decided to build on their own, um, especially from the folks who decided to build on their own, that integrated and integratable are two very, very different things. <laughs> right, right. And when you're talking to firms and they talk about integration, they're talking about typically integratable. Right. And uh, one of the things I think that is incredibly important for folks to do is to spend the time to get to that next level of diligence. Right. Right. And get the experience uh, a day in the life, so to speak, uh, and not just go through a sort of sales process or sort of check the box in their mind that, well, this is similar to where I was, uh, but they are going to give me X, Y and Z. Uh, and I, that makes me happy, and so the rest of it will be fine. Right. The reality is, uh, more often than not, that you're just going to trade one problem for another. Yeah, and, and you got to make a decision. The yeah. decision can be, I trust my guide explicitly, and so whatever he or she says, I'm going to take as fact, and I'm, I'm happy, or I'm, I'm willing to go through this process accepting with faith that this person is is telling me the truth and really knows what they're talking about. The alternative is when you flip that switch and you become an entrepreneur, it's yours, the whole thing. So what we do, I think, at Dynasty is we provide a lot of the support for things to your to your earlier point that are that are not as valuable from a time perspective for advisors. Like I don't think anyone wakes up and gets excited and says, you know what, today I want to do I want to write policies and procedures. I want to figure out, you know, my vacation scheduling for my employees. I want to understand what the compliance program for your firm is. I mean, those things are necessary as an entrepreneur, particularly a wealth management entrepreneur, but not something that someone gets excited about. But in the same sense, there has to be some level of recognition around, I need to understand how these things work. And I need somebody that can help explain things at the level of an operator on how these things work versus just a very superficial explanation or let the deal, whatever the deal is, drive you to a decision. Say, don't worry about it. We have all this stuff. It's all integratable. We can replicate everything that you have and you're going to get. I would I would suggest to, to anyone listening out there, continue to ask questions why and how because it's important. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you want to be able to ensure that the client deliverables that you've had in the past are as good, if not better, in your new environment. I mean, that would be critically important to me if I was making the decision to change firms, to change platforms, to, to make a change. I want to make sure that my client experience is better. Yeah, absolutely. And um, when you think about a firm, you know, you have the back office, which is primarily the custodian. You have the middle office, things like HR, finance, marketing, PR, digital marketing, yep. right, operations, technology. All of those things are kind of baseline services. And um, clients expect that you're going to do all of those middle office functions uh, to uh, uh, the highest degree. Table right? stakes. Their, their default uh, expectation is that it's going to be phenomenal. And so uh, when you start to uh, think about that next step, you're going to start to have to think about, okay, well, uh, am I designed to be able to develop uh, or do I already have the expertise to deliver these services uh, at, that, at that level that my clients are going to uh, expect and that they deserve? Uh, and am I going to have to spend an inordinate amount of time or invest an inordinate amount of resources in managing that middle office functionality so that I can be free to function, uh, to focus, I mean, on the front office, right. which is the third component. And I think where advisors get um, a little bit confused is that, again, uh, even if I were to just plug into a uh, platform provider that says, hey, we'll also run your books and records or, uh, you know, we'll also help you find real estate. The reality is, as everybody knows, uh, the spectrum of services that you can get uh, is huge. And so as you think about the economic construct of any of those potential partners, 
um, you have to think about, is it possible for me to get the expectation that I have given what I'm going to provide economically to my partner? And be honest with yourself that if you're getting way more than uh, – uh, you're getting way more uh, than you would expect for what's being promised to you, then it's very, very, very likely, right, that that promise is not going to live up to <laughs> right. your expectations. <laughs> right. Um, right. I always, I mean, we laugh about it when you see, uh, and we're going to move to the economics because I think we've pretretty much in the early part of this conversation established the higher level why, all of the reasons why someone should look at uh, or potentially look at a different way uh, to manage their their clients' assets. But if you want me to come up with a payout structure that pays you 120% of what your I gross revenue, that. we I mean, you went to Harvard, you could definitely do it. But it, it's true. I, we You sit there sometimes and, and you look at what's being presented to not individuals that are uneducated, but they they actually believe it to be true. They're like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm getting a 95% payout. And my response, which I know I've, I've I've heard you have the same, is, oh, no, you're you're you're. I mean, what is most important at the end of the day? You need to have an apples to apples comparison, which is what are you taking home, not what they're suggesting they're giving you out of your gross revenue, but what are you actually taking home? Which is a good segue. <clears throat> you know, I'd really like you at a high to even more meaty level, you know, walk us through some of the economic considerations and differences. And we can we can have a conversation back and forth around uh, a traditional financial institution versus the independent space. And let me start with like just the baseline. I think that for people listening, depending upon where you're at, the range will vary, but let's call it between take home, you know, high 30s, mid 40s. All right, I'll even give you mid 50s of your gross revenue in a traditional financial institution. Typically, it's going to be around 42 and a half percent or less. How does that compare to independence based on what you've seen over the past few years? Um well, it compares. Uh, it's comparatively low. I mean, to a uh, strong, well-run independent firm. Um, as you think about moving to independence or making any move, you're always going to have a transition year. And anybody who's running an economic model and not highlighting a transition schedule over a, a reasonable period of time uh, and showing the economic impact of all of that. Um, you know, is misleading somebody. I think right. I see a lot of models where people just say, okay, you're making, you know, $5 million right now, you said, and you're trailing 12. And so year one, we're going to model 5 million and then we're going to grow, uh, you know, that by 10% or whatever. Right. Or alternatively, they'll say, um, we, you're, you're managing, you know, a billion dollars right now. And so we'll start a billion dollars year one and your return on those assets is $7 million. So you get 7 million. Then the next year they'll grow the assets by 10% and then they'll use the same ROA and say, okay, that's your new, um, that's your new revenue number. But the reality is if you grow the assets by 10% then, and then calculate revenue off that, you're saying for the entire year, right. what you have now earned in revenue is off the, the amount off of the most assets you had, which is at the very end of that Correct. year. In reality, it's the average between the two. Right. And these are kind of little tricks or they're just mistakes. Because exactly what you said, I mean, if you're running an advisory practice, you all know at the start of 2020, if you have a goal of $25 million, $50 million of net new assets, that goal is achieved over the course of the year. Right, exactly. It's not like people knock on your door on January 1 and like, here's $50 million, please manage right. it for me today, right? right? It's a process. And so if you're doing accurate modeling, even for, even for business planning purposes, you have to assume that the dollars are going to come in at some interval, and that interval is not going to be 100% day one. So therefore, when you're modeling the overall revenue stream, that has to be taken into account. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the things I find a challenge is, uh, again, I said earlier, we're not trying to sell people on uh, building their own firm and becoming independent. We're trying to support folks who are interested in going down that path 
Uh, and when they get to the decision-making stage where they feel comfortable, we want to have laid out a plan that is conservative and very, very achievable and is likely to be exceeded. Whereas you'd flip that on its head um, if you think about the traditional employee model where you're trying to sort of not necessarily overinflate the economics that you're going to bring to a new employer, right. uh, but it is in your best interest to be on the rosier side uh, of what's possible. So those are two totally competing uh, philosophies, right? An entrepreneur, although they're going to understand and want to see what the, uh, what the potential is, they're going to want to have a plan around a very conservative case that they feel very comfortable is executable. And so one of the things I tell advisors all the time when I'm working with them is, do not give me rosy projections on right. your revenue or your assets or your growth rates, right? Be very, very conservative. And then, you know, I'll see um, uh, or through discussions have an idea of what is being um, shown to them by some, uh, you know, some other kind of sure. employee partner or, you know, some halfway step to an independent partner uh, who's, you know, giving upfront money and, uh, to your point, using very high payout headline numbers and things of that nature. Uh, and it becomes very confusing for the advisor to compare those from an apples to apples standpoint. So here's what I would say right. is the only true apples to apples comparison you can do uh, from a take-home economic standpoint. That is what we call earnings before owner's compensation because you are an owner right. now. You're not an employee. You're not an, just an advisor uh, inside of your own firm. You could call it or you might hear it as earnings before advisor compensation as well. But basically, this is we've taken your revenue. We've taken all the costs out uh, to run the business, including staff, real estate, insurance, all, the, all of those things, middle office support, custodian, all the pieces right. uh, to run the business. And so this is what's left pre-tax uh, to go into the bank accounts of the owners. Right. Right. And you can even break that stuff up into multiple different ways. Uh, you could say, okay, well, we have owners and advisors and we're going to put them all below the profit line and from profits we'll pay advisors and then whatever's left is uh, distributed to owners. So you can make those percentages anything you want. I right. mean, it's, it's, uh, it's very confusing. But what a new uh, – what somebody considering making this move uh, should be doing is saying to themselves, okay, once I've paid all of the people that I'm going to pay, Right. And uh, including internally, an advisor who's not an owner, whatever, whittle down to what is then left for me pre-tax. Right. And that is the only direct comparison. And when you think back to, um, you know, the traditional W-2 or uh, employee channel model, I mean, if you want to think about how might you consider the overall value potential to you to compare to an overall value potential to uh, be becoming independent, I would say, okay, well, first, you know, are you going to make a move where somebody's going to pay you an upfront check? Just plan on that. Okay. Right. They're going to give you an up upfront check uh, and it's going to be paid out over some period of time. So model that in. Right. Then they're going to lock you in on a payout probably, you know, 45%, 40%, whatever it is. And so based on your asset growth and the revenue you're going to drive from those assets over some period of time, 10 years is usually what we model, Right. Just calculate, okay, I get that percentage of that revenue theoretically, and uh, there's potential that I'm going to get deferred comp. And so I'm going to move that in. And then you could even say to yourself, and then I'll sell the book one more time right. and realize that that construct is completely uh, ordinary income tax, uh, um, is a d complete ordinary income tax construct. Sure. From the independent side, right, you're going to be able to say my my earnings uh, pre-tax are going to be higher and higher and higher. I'm not, I'm not capped, and that's one of the major value drivers. Right. And then in addition to that, I'm going to be able to sell the business for long-term capital gains down the road. Right. And if you actually look at those numbers, you know, pre- and post-tax, you'll see, I've done this many times, right. that it, the, the economics for a growing firm who's got a vision, who's going to have good leadership and is going to drive forward and is going to invest in that business – uh, for the early stage to get to that greater value proposition down the road, they're going to blow the employee channel out of the water right. every single time. Yeah. That was a lot. And it was a really good breakdown of the thought process and, and what people should be cognizant of. One thing that you stated within that, that dialogue was something that I think people should focus on, 
which is a well-run firm. Mm-hmm. And what that means to me is two things. You have the ability to run, you, if you're listening, you would have the ability to run the firm well or to run the firm poorly. If you run the firm well, obviously the economics look better. If you run the firm poorly, they don't look so good. But what is the the major variable within that control? Like as an entrepreneur, you control the ultimate decisions on salaries, on real estate, on marketing and branding, on everything. Whereas if you're in a captive environment, if you're an employee, it's just like it sounds. I know I'm not saying anything like earth shattering, but you don't have that decision making authority. You can't say to XY institution, you know what, I don't really want to use this financial planning software. So knock off X dollars on my pricing. That's not how it works. Sure. And in addition to that, um, you know, there's plenty of folks out there that say you can be independent with us under our corporate RIA. Right. Um, And this corporate RIA is, you know, tied to an institution that's primarily driven by a legacy brokerage business. And that's really uh, where the majority of the revenue comes from. The reality of a situation like that um, even though you could be on the independent side of that kind of uh, construct, that, that firm's affiliation um, offering, is that you now, as soon as you decide I'm not going to have my own ADV, right. you've now, for the perceived comfort that that might give you, given up a massive amount of control and are now subject to the rules and the requirements and the compliance construct of another firm. Yep who is not going to be able to say, um, we are like-minded with you and you have a voice at the table for real and you're driving the value of this or the future of this business. Very different from saying, I'm going to potentially join an existing RIA who has a uh, value proposition that I really align with and is building the future of that RIA and I have a true voice and I'm going to have some influence in the direction of that firm true influence, that's very different. So I'm not saying don't join other firms. I'm not saying don't go work for other firms. But the type of affiliation and the firm you affiliate with really drives how much of that freedom and control uh, that you've given up. And so um, I would encourage people, um, if they're kind of playing between the I want to just you know, build this on my own. I've got that vision. I've got right. that drive. Or I want to find a firm to partner with. Don't lump, right? The RIAs that are out there right now, you know, ones we support that are really active in M and A, and what they're building with uh, the same construct uh, as joining an extremely large institution, again tied to legacy business, brokerage business, and uh, massive rules and constraints to manage a very, very large number of groups operating separately underneath them. That's a very, very difficult thing to do. Sure. And so you have to, by the nature of it, manage to the lowest common denominator. If you're going to go join a boutique firm, right, they don't have to manage the lowest common denominator. They're bringing in like-minded partners and they're growing that together. Very, very different construct, much more freedom, much more control there. Yeah. One of the things to to carry on with that point that that I would hope and I, I love your insight on this. When you look at a deal structure, there are t- and I try to keep things simple because I just can't. I'm not smart enough to to do more than simple stuff. <laughs> yes, but you are. <laughs> I, I I look at three levers. You've got equity, and equity in two forms. I, I always lay it out. Do you want financial equity, meaning do you just want profit distributions or some sort of financial? relationship with the equity ownership or do you want control do you want both because equity has two components to it control and financial benefits Mm -hmm. do you want a high payout or and do you want upfront money because no matter where you go no matter who you're talking to equity may not be a part of it but but those are the three levers they can pull in order to quote unquote sweeten your deal there's nothing else out there now they can make t- intangible promises we'll give you a corner office we'll get you two monitors we'll give you some T&E etc that's becoming more and more constrained in traditional financial institutions but if you're truly evaluating a deal i think those are the three elements that one would want to think about what's 
can I have an can I have a seat at the table? Am I going to be an equity member of this of this partnership or of this entity? How much are you going to pay me from a payout perspective when I generate my revenue? Does it vary if I'm doing insurance or if I'm doing brokerage or if I'm doing advisory business? Help me understand that. And then how much you can give me upfront cash. And then when you give me that upfront cash, similar to what you were talking about a deal structure, what does that mean? Like, what are the strings attached to the deal? Because again, oftentimes when I mean, you and I have sat in these meetings before and, and people are talking about these different elements and it's not an apples to apples comparison. And they're, they're, they're suggesting that somehow a deal that you're placing in front of them is inferior to another one. I always ask them, well, what, what are you looking at? What's important to you? So as you, as you talk to advisors today, how important are each one of those variables? To you, what's the most important variable, whether it be payout or cash or equity, or is it a combination of three? What are people thinking about from the financial perspective of the deals that you're getting in front of uh, today? I think f- folks are uh, very interested in the economics of the, of the deal, right. certainly. For sure. Um, I think second to that would be control. Um, and I think you brought up a really interesting point there from an equity standpoint. If you're going to partner with a firm, um, there are going to be the components that you laid out. And so as you think about that, it's not just your take home is not just your equity. Right. I'm sorry. It's not just your pay, right? right? Your percentage of revenue that you're going to get on the business that you drive. Um, it's that plus your percentage of distributions. Sure. So when you think about uh, a typical RIA, just to kind of put this in, con- in context, you know, let's just say uh, 60% uh, of revenue from an EBOC or profitability margin before the owner group has uh, really paid themselves. Um, and so they might, and I, we would recommend this, bucket a group of that profit as, uh, as advisor kind of compensation, owner advisor compensation, right. so that you can then establish a uh, flow of free cash flow, right, or a stream of free cash flow beyond that. So in that construct, if we started at 60% of revenue is sort of the profitability before that group pays themselves, and then they say, as a group, we pay ourselves 40% of revenue, split however you want, and then we have 20% of uh, revenue as a free cash flow stream that we've generated, um, that is a really nice construct to be able to go out to market and show the value of. Sure. But my, to my earlier point, you're getting your 40% plus your percentage of the 20% that's there to be dis- distributed. Absolutely. Um, and so you kind of have to understand how all of those pieces come together. Plus you're getting the, the equity value that's being uh, developed over time there. And uh, again, the tax treatment of the equity value is, is significant. Uh, the tax treatment benefit of the equity value is significant. So. Which and to further that point, if you're t- if you're if you've designed it within the construct that you just laid out, and you have twenty percent of free cash flow, that doesn't mean that it has to be paid out in addition to the forty percent that you're taking. It means you could use it for whatever you want as as a business. So, again, it's it's having the flexibility to create a compensation schema that has multiple ways in which people could be compensated, not just from a percentage of revenue, but also from the equity component of, of the, the business right, as well. Right, and I want to be clear that that's just how you might distribute the existing profit sure. stream and take that a step further and you want to take that business to market and right. you want to sell it. You know, uh, Let's say even if you're going to do an internal sale, you, you would probably use a construct like this. But as you think about what's the firm's value um, instead of saying, you know, advisors, uh, this advisor group that's going to sell pays 40% and then we distribute the 20%, what we'd basically say is from the profits, from that 60%, yeah. I need to be able to replace you guys in that group. For sure. Right? And that replacement cost to continue to manage an existing book of business that's kicking off the revenue that it's kicking off, you know, maybe it's 25%, maybe it's 30%. It will depend in everybody's scenario right? Maybe it's 35%, but take that percentage out of the profits. And that's the free cash flow yep. that's going to be left that you would run your valuation on, right? So how you're actually constructing it on a day-by-day basis to distribute the profits is not necessarily going to drive the cash flow number that's going to determine the ultimate value. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good point. As you go through the modeling exercise, um, because you and I talk about this a lot, what are some of your concerns? What are what are some of the things that, um, you know, take you 
take you some time, maybe maybe give you a little bit of angst? What are the things that you're concerned as, the, as you go well, through the modeling? I had mentioned it earlier, but one of the first things uh, uh, that, again, I drive home is be conservative. Yeah. Right? Don't be don't be doom and gloom. Well, we can do that. Yeah, I, when you say be conservative, my favorite is, you know, when people, they, they, come, they, they start this discussion with you, and then you ask them what their their CAGR is, their compound annual growth rate. And they're like, well, ah, just model it at 25%. And yeah. then you ask them, well, what was your CAGR for the past three years? And they're like 8%. So right. immediate, like as soon as you become independent, you're just going to blow that. Why would you, why do you want to model for that? Why don't, to your point, we take a conservative estimate and look at what your growth rate has been for the past three years, if you have that data. And let's use that number versus something that, to your point, may not be achievable. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and then being willing to take the time to dive into your book of business, to break it out in a way that is going to give you uh, the ability to be very methodical about sort of thinking about how that all is going to map over into independence. You know, at right. a high level, we're kind of breaking the business into an advisory component, into a brokerage component. You know, maybe there's institutional retirement consulting or some other kind of uh, side of the business. And so each one of those components, right, has various nuances to it that need to be uh, brought together to get to uh, an accurate projection. Right. Right. As accurate as you can be in a projection. And that's one of the other things that I want to get to is, you know, a lot of times folks will look at 10 year projection models and sort of see that as, um, you know, the the absolute absolute truth. truth. Right. It's a it's a single scenario. Right. And the reality is. The, you know, you you you'd ha- you really would build maybe 50 different scenarios and give a probability to each one of those scenarios to come up with your probability weighted um, average there. But uh, it's a great tool uh, to give you the comfort for how everything comes together. And if you're being conservative, to give you the comfort that you're going to meet or exceed. I think uh, the tool is. and the process. Yeah. I, I always look at it as if someone is not willing to engage and put the time in to dig into the information necessary to get an accurate pro forma or an accurate projection of what the business could look like, how would that same person then suggest that they're ready to be an entrepreneur? Like, what do you mean? I get it. It's tedious. I totally appreciate that there's a lot of questions, but I would want to know to the best ability possible, which to your point, there's thousands of variables that come in and, and throw this off. But given this, the current base case and given some realistic conservative assumptions, this is I would want to be all in on that. Right. I would want to engage with someone like you and say, OK, help me understand why you're suggesting this ROA uh, why are you putting this growth rate on? What is the net effect of tax rate? How did you get to this enterprise value? And it's crazy. Sometimes we don't. Even, it's just like, no, it's fine. Just do whatever. Yeah, I'll give you. <laughs> I'll give you a perfect example. One of the areas I'm usually overly conservative in, uh, but I want to be overly conservative in, is sort of estimating startup costs. And as you think about starting up a business, there's a couple of ways you could go from a real estate standpoint. Sure. An easy example, right? Um, you could get a 10-year long-term lease and uh, invest in improving that space. Uh, above and beyond any landlord uh, provided tenant improvement dollars. Right. Right. Um, alternatively, you could find a sublease. Alternatively, you could find a co working space. And we do all of these strategies for our teams. Right. When I build a model, the first model I build for teams is always, always the most conservative, most expensive uh, from a startup standpoint uh, construct saying, I'm going to assume you're going to do a 10 year lease. Also, I'm going to assume that the landlord you pick requires an entire 12 months security deposit. Right. And I'm going to assume that you're going to invest above and beyond um, in improving the space beyond what the landlord is going to provide in tenant improvement dollars, another one year's at least worth of, uh, uh, of rent. Right. Right. And I can tell you that I have never even gotten, I've never seen a team even come close to that. Right. You know, two to three months rent. Sure. From a from a security deposit standpoint, uh, but I'm going to take that that approach with my with the teams that I'm consulting, so we can start there and then discuss what that means and start to go into the conversation about what are some other ways you could do it, right? Lower cost, and we get to a final kind of 
outcome. Right. Okay, this is the plan. And then that plan translates into uh, the launch and the transition uh, uh, planning process that our teams go right. through. But but all of that, just again, and and this is no means a commercial for our company and what we do, but there's an integration when we're working with our clients between the modeling, the negotiation on real estate, the final impact on the decisions that people make, and then actually helping to purchase the furniture, helping to design the branding, helping to design the packages that are going to go to clients, and all of those costs because there's the interaction between the teams that are actually doing that work, our transition relationship management team, and the team that's doing the modeling, you and your team on the business development side, there's there's very little room for slippage in the transition process. And, yeah, that's right. and that's incredibly critical for people to think about whomever that you're working with. There's great guides that are going to be able to give lots of really important advice. And I am so pro anybody that's out there and, and talking about there may be a different way, a better way for people to provide financial advice to their clients. But I also want people to be cognizant of when that information is given to you, how many times has that individual actually taken a team and gone through all of the steps from start to finish that you would need to have happen in order to make a transition successful? And there are people that are great specialists in areas, and we work with a lot of them, right? The, the beauty, and for me and what you're talking about is, you know, when you started modeling— you know, how much of this information did you know? How much were you factoring in uh, what a what a tenant improvement cost would look like from a real estate perspective versus what you're doing today? How how has your modeling evolved over time? Well, it's uh, I got to work under some really great people who taught me, including you, by the way, uh, yeah. who are incredibly knowledgeable. Um, and taught me the business. So if, I, I think the way I would answer that is if I didn't know, right. my process was to go to the folks that uh, I knew would know the answer and I would start to uh, – and I would build that in uh, and I would uh, more often than not ask those individuals to come into the conversation and convey the knowledge that they have to the advisors that I was working with. Yeah. Um, so I've been able to not have to do that as much as I've gotten more and more experience and more and more familiar. And we've done, as you mentioned, uh, a number of teams, very successful. And, um, you know, I, I sort of think about Great Diamond Partners right now as just uh, an incredible example yep. of what's possible when you are truly driven by a dream uh, that you want to create and you take this from a conservative, prudent, methodical uh, mindset and approach. And they they had achieved uh, what we had modeled for year four, I think, uh, before the nine month period wow. of, uh, you know, of their first year. So that's, you know, that's the progression, having the experience to be able to sit there and coach people through. Yeah. I think that's what's evolved more over time. Um, how to uh, approach this process with a lot of confidence to get them to understand that this isn't about, as we've said earlier, aspirations. This is really about putting a prudent plan in place. <clears throat> Switching gears for, for a minute, and this is a tough one because anytime you use the, the, the phrase or start a phrase with right, right type of anything, it can be, yeah, it can be, it's for one, it's completely contextual and it, it can be construed or, um, defined in different ways, but you work and talk to a lot of people, a lot of advisors that are, that are interested. I think a lot of them are genuinely interested in becoming an entrepreneur and starting an RIA and being an independent advisor. But what is the right type of advisor? Um, What is the right type of advisor to become a successful wealth management entrepreneur? So we talk a lot about advisor to CEO. So I think that the right type of advisor is uh, an advisor who has a real desire to be a leader, who has a vision, who has a strong team behind them, who shares that vision. Or maybe there's few partners where you're sharing that leadership uh, construct. Um, And 
you have the wherewithal to be able to see the forest through the trees. At the end of the day, you're not going to sacrifice the goal uh, for perceived convenience uh, and familiarity. And if you have those things, if you have the leadership ability, if you're a true student of the industry, if you have a real vision uh, that's above and beyond the baseline services that you can essentially find anywhere, um, and you really want to build something unique, then um, I would say you know you're a nice, you're you're a very good fit. I would say the ones I think are outsized successful are the ones who also recognize that it's not as simple as taking the team that you have and just adding right to their responsibilities as right. if those individuals with a little bit of advice but no execution support to your uh, earlier point will be able to turn into marketing stars, PR stars, technology sure. stars, so on and so forth. Right. And so recognizing that there's going to be an investment in talent and how you make that investment is up to you. But there will be an investment in talent right. and an investment in time that either you guys are going to take on as an individual group or that you will uh, find a partner to take on for you. Yeah. Uh, and that is just a philosophical right. decision. I think that it's it's a philosophical decision, but it's a, it's an extremely important one. I mean, obviously, it's the bedrock of our business, which is you can choose to assume that somebody within your firm is going to be a great chief compliance officer without much support. Assume to you, your earlier comments become a social or uh, media guru, or you can choose to partner, and there's there's plenty of firms to partner with, but partner with us and which has individuals that do this every day. That's, That's right. their job. Their job is to know how to manage through SEC audits. Their job is to know how to ensure that you have the highest SEO score. Their job, so social, have a right. score, search engine optimization score. Their job is to help you to understand what's the best way to position uh, your fees for your clients to create your value, and a lot of a lot of advisors that we work with. I mean, I've been with Dynasty for a while. For the the basic stuff, like the the practice management, they're they're really good. Like they they most advisors are that we work with are extremely successful. I think our average client size is close to seven hundred million dollars. So you don't mm. you don't start. You don't you don't build a a asset base like that and not know what you're doing. It, it, it's 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 you know what you're doing. So then the question is, when you become an inter, an independent advisor and you become an entrepreneur, why not leverage things that are not going to be extremely additive to the enterprise value of the firm? That's the basic question. Like, can you build a great CCO internally? Sure, but the dollars and time that it takes to do that is it worth that? versus outsourcing some of that or all of it to a partner? And that's sure. the big question. Yeah, let me clarify a little bit. When I say a, a philosophical uh, decision, sure. there are going to be folks who are natural builders. And I, I mean by natural builder, people who uh, just want to build it on their own. Yeah. That's their nature. And they're going to drive that direction no matter what, right. every day. And that's perfectly fine. Sure. But the take-home of this discussion, uh, I think, can really be summarized uh, by sort of saying either you're going to do it, you're going to hire internally staff to do it, and then you're going to have to manage that, or you're going to find a partner right. to execute it for you. And the nuanced difference here that is not really well explained in the industry is that plugging into a platform partner, again, is not going to actually provide you execution support right. in these middle office yep. uh, uh, activities. So firms like Dynasty, and there are others in the marketplace as well, we are providing the execution there. Right. And that is a whole nother level of support right. uh, than, uh, than you can get from just plugging into a back office, middle office. Yeah. And the reality, and I, I said this on an earlier podcast and just thinking about what we do. I mean, our firm for a decade or so has been at some stages a startup. I think now we're a more established firm, but definitely early on startup serving other startups. Mm -hmm. So to assume that the, the journey or the path is going to be 
without any rocks and that you're not going to stub your toe from time to time is just, just not a rational assumption to be made. The reality, though, to your point is that we are execution partners. We do understand the nuances to lots of different technologies, lots of different integrations, and lots of things that happen on a day-to-day basis because we've seen them so many times. Mm-hmm. So, again, just finding the right partner for you and coming back to the question is what's the the, the right type of advisor is someone that's able to make that decision, right? That's someone right. that's able to understand, look, here are the things that we do really well and that we want to continue doing in order to grow the enterprise value. We're going to prioritize these things versus here are the things that are, you know, they're kind of a nuisance. Like they're not really adding to the enterprise value. We're either going to outsource it or we're going to find someone internal that can take that on. Um, but we need to make a decision because I can't prioritize my time to be doing all of these things that right. are not additive to the business. What, last question for you, what, what brings you the greatest feeling of success or accomplishment professionally as you go through your, your day-to-day? The home runs, <laughs> honestly. Um, when you, when I get a chance to work with a team who's got, I've said this so many times, but has a real vision and they're driving in a direction um, and we get to partner with them and we help them achieve that vision. And in helping them achieve that vision, we've laid out a prudent and reasonable path um, that is likely to be exceeded and then it is exceeded. Right. Um, and to, to see the enjoyment that the team uh, exudes in their new work environment, right, right? and uh, the, the pride they have in what they're able to deliver their clients, to see that spark kind of develop again and uh, that motivation, because you hear this all the time, you know, folks that are working for large institutions or whatever, it feels like a job a lot right. of times. That's not for everybody. Some people love it. Sure. But for a lot of folks, it starts to feel like a job. And so that spark comes back. Um, I just, I, I get a ton of enjoyment. I, I, you know, it can't be overstated. I, I and we as a firm understand that we are dealing with folks' life's work. Sure. And uh, the gravity of that responsibility is tremendous. Yep. And so everything that we do, um, you know, is approached from from that baseline understanding. Um, so those are my best days. Yeah, I agree. I think that what you just said, when you, and I know that you do this, or also when I do this, when you truly appreciate and take on that burden of ensuring that someone's life work, someone's life's work is held to the highest standard of care, you also tend to create very meaningful relationships with the individuals involved in the process. And so some of my greatest memories uh, over the past 10 years, outside of all the great things that have happened with, with family and friends, has been through this company and with our clients. And it's a much different relationship. I always said <clears throat> in some of the early meetings with people, it, let me explain the difference between what I did before and what I do now. Before, I wanted you to respect me as a member of the organization, and I'm a human being. I also would prefer that you liked me, but I didn't expect anything more than that. Mm -hmm. In this construct, no, I expect that we're going to become so close that we're going to have, we're going to share holiday cards. Like, I want to know about everything that's going on because this move is incredibly stressful for people and their families and this is something that's really really important and so when you get through this and you have success and you beat the numbers you do tend to have this relationship with the people where you know it's a friday night and you're sitting on your couch and you're texting them back and forth and that to me that's what makes us special that it's more than an employer employee it's more than a colleague it's like you're making lifelong friends which to me is really cool um and that also stings when things don't go well i I know that you feel the same way you know if if we don't fulfill our promises to our clients it hurts it's not just a number it's not just you know an out on a sheet this person left and went to xyz firm it's gosh we didn't uphold our promise for this person 
and you know they're they're not doing well because of it and that and that's something that I take incredibly personally mm-hmm. as I know that you do absolutely well thanks for joining me today I really appreciate it thanks um, for having me this was fun yeah good time Thank you very much for listening to the Powering Independence podcast and a special thank you to Ben Bynes uh, for joining me today. We really appreciate it and look forward to hearing from you. And to all you listeners, please stay tuned as we will be sending out another podcast in the near future.